As you stand in body or spirit, let us go before God's word, very likely as Jesus and the disciples would have reciting what they called the Shema and of course what we have called the great commandment. If you'll follow after me in Hebrew, we'll join together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, This fall, we're uh, in an emphasis about engaging one another in the church, engaging people in our neighborhoods, and then engaging the larger city and world. So uh, we want to look at uh, the very first people who followed Jesus, the very first who became a church. So we'll be in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. I have no chance in the dark without glasses. So here we go. This is the summary in chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, being of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. There are people who look at this passage from Acts chapter 2, and immediately they find a problem. Uh, Some find a problem that they think this is a form of communism. So just politically, uh, they can't make the adjustment uh, in their life. But it would be helpful for us to remember that Karl Marx is about two millennia after the book of Acts. And it's also helpful to know that in the ancient world, when you shared this deeply with one another, uh, what you were doing was fulfilling what they thought the highest ideals of community and friendship were. So, for example, when Plato talks about the early days of Athens, one of the things that uh, Plato says that in the early days of Athens, they shared everything together. There was a, a famous uh, philosopher, mathematician. His name was Pythagoras. And Pythagoras had a group of people who followed him. And when they followed him, they shared everything that they had together. The Essenes, who were the community that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls and also gave us John the Baptist, were famous in Qumran for sharing all of their things together. So it wasn't any sort of political statement. It was a, a sense of idealized community and uh, friendship. So we need not be too disturbed by that. Now, others are disturbed by the fact that they look at this and they say, Luke's making it up. This is just too good a picture. It's too good to be true. Well, in Luke's defense, let me tell you that in chapter five, he talks about people who don't share with the community and they die. In chapter six, he talks about people who were receiving from the community, arguing with each other because they weren't receiving all that they thought that they needed. And they'll go a few more chapters and he'll talk about an argument between two of the great heroes of the church, Paul and Barnabas. So Luke is not in the habit of trying to cover things up. And in fact, uh, there is some evidence in the early church that this sort of deep sharing and community took place. When Paul writes the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, he's collecting money for another church and he points them to the example of the Macedonian church. And he says, they're poor and yet they get their 
of themselves. About um, almost a hundred years after the book of Acts is written, there's a, a group of Christians and their leader is a man named Tertullian, who's one of the fathers of the early church. And he says of his community, he said, we share all things in common except our spouses. So there's some sense that this did happen. Uh, and the other thing to know in Luke's defense is Luke in the gospel of Luke and in Acts will often give you like a, a one sentence or two sentence or three sentence summary that covers a larger period of time. He's going to hit the highlights for you to move the story along. And this is one of those summaries. We don't know what period of time we're talking about when people got together and they shared and, and they did, they broke bread and did these other things. But Luke only lifts up the highlights for us because he wants to move the story along. And actually, if we think that this is an ideal picture and what uh, Luke is telling us might be too good to be true, maybe we should at least stop and say, well, what is Luke trying to lift up to us as the ideal? Rather than complain it's idealistic, let's take a moment and say, well, what is he idealizing in this, in this picture? And I would say he's idealizing in one word, relationships. Now, I see uh, three key relationships that come out of this passage. The first relationship is what he calls the, the apostles' teaching. Remember, in this day, uh, there is no New Testament. In this day, what they have is the Older Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And then what they have are the apostles who lived with Jesus for three years. They have their stories. And so basically, they're gathering and they're saying, tell us everything you can about Jesus. If we're going to follow him, we want to know more about him. So in this idealized community, one of the things we learn right away is the very center of this community is Jesus. And the goal is to learn as much about Jesus as you can and be as close to him as you can in your walk of life and faith. And um, to me, this makes perfect sense. Do you probably remember some years ago, people had bracelets that said, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, it starts with knowing what Jesus did. And to know what Jesus did, they, they listened to the apostles teaching them about Jesus. I, I highlight that because one of the opportunities, as I mentioned, the announcements you have at the close of the service this morning is to go join a group of people in a class that are seeking to learn more about Jesus. And so I lift that up to you. Perhaps you've heard me quote before the Jewish New Testament scholar. You might say, how can there be such a thing? Well, there's a famous Jewish scholar. His name is David Flusser, but he got very interested in Jesus and in learning about Jesus. So he became quite expert in some of the Jewish background of Jesus. But one time he told a group of Christians this. He said, anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus and does not read all four gospels every month is a liar. Now that's a little, that's a little harsh, but you get his point. If we want to follow Jesus, we need to know about Jesus. So it started with the relationship of how can we learn more about Jesus? The relationship we're also uh, um, found out in, involved their relationship with God. We're told that every day they went to prayers. Now, here's the thing. Um, a prayer room is a wonderful thing that we have. We pray for people after service. Prayer is a wonderful and beautiful thing. But one of the things you need to know is that when the Jews use the word prayers, often they mean worship. And that the, one of the key ways that they stayed in relationship with God was through worship. And so they would go, the only place they knew to go at that time for worship, they'd go to the temple twice a day, nine in the morning, three in the afternoon. 
And worship remains a central relationship that we have in our faith even to this day. Worship is where we get um, a chance to do our job. We were, the Bible seems to indicate, uh, um, created to lift up God and to be in relationship with God and, and to praise God in worship. So this is like one of the places we get to do that. The Psalms say that, that God is enthroned on the praises of God's people. Now, what this doesn't mean is if we don't show up and worship, God is no longer king. But what it does mean is that one of the ways that the world sees that God is king is by the fact that we come and worship together. The other thing about worship is we get kind of a picture of what life in God's kingdom should look like. And so often, you know, our, our uh, worldviews are just um, uh, created by CNN or Fox News or, or the, the tweets that we see. And, and, and that's not bad. But in here, we hope that in worship, we get a worldview that's created around God. I mean, where else in the world do you take a moment and confess your sins or take a moment and ask for forgiveness or take a moment and greet people you may not even know and call them a brother or sister. There is a way of living in the church that, that should prepare us for life outside the church. Uh, rabbi Sachs, um, summarizing, who used to be the chief rabbi in the, in the UK, said that a number of recent studies in the United States and the UK uh, say that the number one predictor of altruism and Empathy, which follows altruism or sometimes leads to altruism, the number one predictor is whether a person worships in a synagogue or a church on the weekend. It shapes their heart and their character. So the second key relationship besides learning all about Jesus was they stayed in relationship with God through worship. And then finally, they had a deep relationship with each other. We're told that they shared fellowship. And the word in Greek is a word you've probably heard before, koinonia. And it means a very deep sharing. It wasn't like, did you see the game last night? Or uh, do you think it's going to stop raining? That, that's not unimportant. But when you get to the layer below that about what your life is really about, the word in Greek might, for that might be koinonia. And then we're told they broke bread together. Now, I have to confess to you that for years, I thought breaking bread meant they had communion then maybe it did. But in the ancient world, to break bread meant that you were vulnerable and open with each other. Think about it. When we were uh, raising our children, we had three children, uh, each spaced about four or so years apart. And if we invited you over to dinner, it was very likely that you would see at least one of the three children not behave, really likely that you'd see two of the three children fight with each other, and real possibility you'd see our cat jump on the dining room table. And yet, we, if we invited you over, we were opening you to our family. There's a sharing that takes place around the table that doesn't take place outside the table. This is what they said in the ancient world, you don't wear your swords to the table. There is this openness, this community. So we see this deep sharing that they have with one another. Uh, one commentator in the book of Acts says that a lot of people think the miracle of Pentecost was all the speaking in tongues, and that was miraculous. But he said the real miracle was that people that came from all those countries all over the world then got together under Jesus, that they opened their lives to each other. And they had this deep sharing, this deep relationship. So this idealized portrait that Luke gives says that 
um, that when a community of people gets together and learns more about Jesus, stays in love with God through worship, and shares their life deeply with one another, interesting things are going to happen. And among the things that happened were miracles, signs, and wonders broke out among the people. They, and then people in the community were filled with awe. They were impressed. And even God was like, I'm going to send them some more. I'm going to send them some more people because of the way they live together. Living together in community is, in fact, a miracle, I think, in the modern world. Uh, a friend of mine uh, leads a number of recovery groups, and he said this. He said, a lot of people think in 12-step groups, what gets us together is our common problem. He said, but the truth is what gets and holds us together is our common solution that we have found in a higher power and in meeting with each other, the freedom from our addiction. And I think the early church found a common solution. They found life around Christ. We were talking about the text this week and, and um, a retired pastor named Lynn Anderson, who mentors now a number of us sort of unofficially by his presence, was talking about when his father years and years ago became a Christian in Canada. He had, he had come over from Sweden and, uh, and somebody was trying to share the gospel with him and so shared uh, a translation of, uh, about the gospel and about the church in Swedish. And the interesting thing was the word that he used and translated um, uh, church in Swedish is the, was the word he used for his father was circle. And he described for Lynn's father that the church is like a circle of people who gather around Jesus. And he said, the doors just opened for my father because he had always thought of churches as bishops and buildings and secret code language and shaming of poor behavior. And now he found it, this joyful circle. I think that's what church is about. In fact, when I look at Acts 2, 42 through 47, the real problem is not what's written there. The real problem is how it doesn't happen frequently enough among the churches in our world. I'm reminded of a former professor at SMU, Zan Holmes. He went to preach at another town uh, years and years ago. So he got off the airplane and somebody was supposed to meet him to the airport and take him to the church where he was gonna speak. But nobody met him at the plane. He, he noticed a, a, a woman uh, about 50 feet away from him and she wasn't going toward him or going anywhere else. You know, this back the days you could come all the way to the, the airline's gate, but nothing happened. And so he's about to go find a pay phone to call the church and said, you know, nobody's come to pick me up. And then suddenly the woman finally came up to him rather timidly and said with something in her hand, are you Dr. Holmes? And he was like, yes, yes, I am. And she looks and said, funny, you don't look like your picture she had carried. And Holmes said something I've never forgotten. Acts 2 is the picture of the church. Do we look like that picture? So many of us lament um, uh, people that don't seem to be attracted to church community this day. And studies are pretty consistent that the reason that a lot of people are not attracted to church uh, among the two key ones are they don't feel like the people in the church are living authentically what they claim to believe. And secondly, and this one hurts me, that they think the world outside the church is kinder to each other than the world inside the church. Is that our picture? I don't think so. I think Acts 2, that's the picture I experience here. That's the 
That's the picture I long to have others experience. I'm reminded of the late Fred Craddock started his preaching ministry in the, uh, in the Appalachians. And he talks about one small church where he's a pastor and their um, habit was or practice or tradition was the night before Easter, they would baptize all the new members who wanted to join their little church. So that was like anywhere from probably two to five. But what they would do is they would set up booths, like little changing booths on the lake, on the lake shore. And people would change into like swimwear and they'd go and they'd dunk them in the water and they'd baptize them, they'd bring them back to the booth, they'd put on dry clothes, and they'd gather around a warm fire, and they would make a circle. And one by one, to the new people who had joined, folks would step forward in the circle, and they'd say their name. I'm, and they'd give the name, and if you ever need somebody to chop wood, call me. I'm, if you ever need somebody to sit uh, with uh, your parents or a child so you can run an errand, you call me. I'm, they introduced, if you ever need a car because yours is broken, call me. I'm, if one of your appliances breaks, call me and I'll be there. One after one offered themselves to these new people. When it was over, they're covering the fire. Everybody's gone home except the head uh, um, deacon of the church. And he looks at uh, Fred Craddock and he says, you know, Craddock, Folks just don't get much closer than this. And Craddock said, he walked to his car and he was thinking, there's a word for what I just experienced. There's a word for this circle that I just experienced. And then he realized it and he said, the word for that is church. I think the word for that is church. May it be so.